Peter Hitchens, very good to see you. And thank you for joining me for 20 Questions With. You are a writer, you've written lots of books, and you are a columnist for The Mail on Sunday. How would you define a successful life? Do you think about what a successful life means? Do you have barometers for your own success? Well, I have barometers for success in particular things, enterprises. It's nice to have written a book that people read and appreciate. That's a success. A successful life is a completely different thing. Successful life is much more at the person. Uh, I think when we, we all hope to, to die in our beds surrounded by adoring children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. That would probably be the best measure of a successful life. Do you think you've led a successful life so far? Too early to tell. Call no man happy until he is dead is a good rule. I don't know. It's a, there's some time to go yet. I don't know how much time. I'm already in extra time, but you can't tell. Are you happy? Am I happy? Well, happiness doesn't seem to me to be a constant state. I'm happy sometimes and un unhappy at others. I'm fortunate, but that's a different thing. Do you search for meaning? Is there meaning in life? I believe there is meaning in life. That is that is because I am a believing Christian, and I've adopted that as, as my uh, my idea of what the universe is about, what it's for, what its nature is, and how we should live. And, I, and that that certainly provides meaning. What does your belief in God mean? How would you explain it to us? Well, I think I would say that I, I at least I have some idea of what is supposed to be good and what I should do and how I should live my life and how I shouldn't do these things. Could you elaborate a little bit? Well, I, I, not really, no, because it, it, it's a constant daily, sometimes 20 times daily test. We're, we're confronted with choices as to what to do. We have to decide how to do them. We're, we're confronted with choices as to what to think about things uh, and how to act or not act about them how to treat other people and how not to treat them. It's, it's, it's incessant. But if you have, in my view, no fundamental view about the nature of the universe and its purpose, then it's difficult for you to work out how to behave. And in the years, the long uh, and rather barren years in which I had no such concepts, I often behaved in ways which I now see as being very bad. I, I have no doubt that if I live long enough to, to look back with the same perspective on my life now, I would also find there were many things that I've done in, in recent times that I now feel were inadequate or terrible or, or, or actually bad. And it's, it's often, it often takes a long time before you judge the quality of your own actions, but it's, it gives me a measure by which to do so. It also gives me a purpose to which, which to follow. Why do you think it takes time to come to terms with things that you don't do right or that you don't you don't get right or you behave in a way that you don't feel comfortable with? Why, given that you are now 72 years old, why are you not able to grasp it in the moment? Well, I'm not saying it's that I come to terms with it. I'm saying that you often don't realise when you're doing terrible things that you are doing terrible things. You simply aren't self-aware enough uh, of, and you, you, don't, you, don't, you do not know how selfishly or cruelly or spitefully you're behaving at the time. You don't see it. You're so bound up. We're all so bound up in ourselves and so so busily living our lives that we often don't observe what we're doing to others. And later on, it suddenly comes to you in a great shuddering moment of realisation. I, I wouldn't say I come to terms with it. What do you do when you're hit by a great shuddering 
sense of of what you've done that realization well i shudder that's what i do it's not there isn't anything you can do it's these things have all been done they're not they're not revocable you can't go back and undo them does your faith help you to be a better person well the the whole purpose of divine grace is that we is that we go before the the, the throne of the heavenly grace at, at the end uh, justified not by ourselves but by christ so it's not when we're, we're not we're not expecting to be judged on the basis of whether we were good or bad. So it it, it might help me uh, if my faith is justified. Uh, if I've got it wrong, then it won't. When I asked you to explain what your religiousness means so that we could understand it, I was hoping also to get a sense of how you see God. How, how do you envisage God? Do, do you think that God is is sort of hanging hanging out there somewhere in the ether, in, in heaven? Is God inside us? What is God? Who Who is God as you understand God to be? Well, I, God is the, is, is the creator of the universe and the maker of all things and the judge of all men. But I, I don't know him. If, if, if you had made some creature, uh, even a creature with considerable consciousness, it wouldn't know what you know. Uh, we're by, by definition we cannot know um, our maker because our maker is so much greater than we are. I don't struggle to. It's sometimes, for metaphorical purposes, there are poetic descriptions of God, particularly in the Psalms, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, which which make you realize the immense power uh, of the idea. But it's it's futile to try to imagine God as a, as a man with a white beard blowing in the wind in a stained glass window. Nor it's not necessary either. So what is it that persuades you on an ongoing basis that God exists? Well, first of all, I desire God to exist. I prefer to live in a universe with a purpose. So I decide that's what mainly persuades me. I persuaded myself. We all persuade ourselves to believe what we believe. I've just interviewed David Badil for this very podcast, and he's written a book called The God Desire, which is about the desire that human beings have for there to be a God. Does your answer mean that on some level you actually are sceptical as to whether there's a God or indeed perhaps think that... I'm sceptical. Everybody, everybody is, has doubts about every belief. It's in the nature of belief. Belief is concerns what you cannot know. It's about the unknowable, therefore you could be wrong. The Gospels are full of people who had doubts. It's not a surprising or shocking thing to have doubts about a belief. Would you put your house on it? Well, it's not really that kind of thing, is it? And I'm not, I'm not, being, I'm not making a bet. What I'm trying to get at is if, if I really... I put, my soul, I put my soul on it, which is a much more considerable thing than my house. If I put your, your, your toes to the fire and... and you really had to come up with your your best answer as to whether there is a, a God, the sort of God that you believe in or not. You would say there is. Oh, absolutely! I believe there is. I, I believe there is a God. Yes. Do you think, Peter, that religion has done more good or more harm in, in the history of human beings on the balance sheet? I, I've never tried to toss it up. I, undoubtedly, sometimes it does harm, but that wouldn't necessarily be a reason not to believe in God. My experience of you can be that you are very forthright in the way that you express your opinions and that you seem to believe very strongly in the opinions that you offer. And I'm wondering whether you sometimes have a shudder of realisation that you might have got something wrong or that you did get something wrong intellectually or in a debate in the same way that you say you sometimes shudder with realisation that you got something wrong in the moral sphere. Well, this is the answer is so obviously yes, because I used to be a a, a, a Trotskyist atheist, and I've stopped being one. And I was wrong when I was doing that. 
it's a big mistake to make. And if you, having made it and decided it was a mistake, there's an awful lot of detailed rebuilding to do, but also the interesting experience of changing your mind and the implication in it, in everything you thereafter do, that you might be wrong again. The, the experience of being spectacularly wrong over the major issues of life, the universe, and everything for several years uh, doesn't make you infallible, but it makes you less likely to plunge into similar mistakes again. I, I shouldn't have assumed the backdrop, which is, of course, you started off as a socialist. I think you would describe yourself as having been. And you moved at some point to the right. You, you were a conservative for a while. I think you then turned your back on the British Conservative Party. I don't quite know where you are now, and perhaps you can tell us. But given that backdrop, are there specific headlining type views that you've had, say, on drugs and addiction and how to deal with drugs? Or some of the views that you put forth during the pandemic, as, as another example... Have you looked back on these sorts of seminal or important debates and thought, actually, maybe I was a bit too certain or actually I got that one wrong? No, I look back on the ones you mentioned with, uh, with the great satisfaction of having said what was right at the time. Do you mind criticism? You sometimes trend on, on Twitter or X, as it's now called, and you can, you can be a lightning rod. People can hold you up as a almost as a as, as a sort of beacon of truth but people can also tear you down as someone who is seriously wrong how aware of criticism or praise are you and how much do you really in your deep down in your heart how much do you care about it well i don't i've been given the great gift of enjoying uh, debate and not minding much if the debate turns a little bit raucous uh, I've been insulted by experts, and really it takes quite a lot to annoy me. In fact, one of the best ways of annoying me is to, is to accuse me of being thin-skinned, which because it's so much, so obviously the reverse of the truth. I, I wouldn't volunteer for what I do if I were thin-skinned. It'd be a stupid occupation to undertake. But I do get very bored with stupid uh, critics who don't approach the subject with reason. I, I will argue with anybody, and I work with something I call the presumption of intelligence. Anybody who approaches me with an argument and then is responsive when I reply to it, uh, they're okay. But as soon as somebody reacts to one of my arguments by not responding to what I've said, by neither, there's two things you can do when you're rebutted in an argument. You can either say, yes, actually, you're right. I've, uh, you, your, your facts are correct my, and your reason is correct and what I said was wrong. Or you can say, I disagree with that and this is why. It's setting out why, say again, providing facts and reason for doing so. What you can't do is just repeat what you said the first time uh, or resorts to personal abuse of the tedious kind we so often get. And so as I say, I operate the presumption of innocence, and I give people quite a few goes, but when it's clear to me beyond doubt, beyond reasonable doubt, as the, as, the, as the saying goes, that they aren't intelligent enough to argue, then I might adopt a little bit of ad hominem for my own pleasure and their own instruction, because sometimes uh, a stinging rebuke or a bit of mockery will actually cause people to think who can't be reached by any other means. So I, 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 I believe that argument is, is sacred, that people have to be prepared to do it properly. 
and that you have to be prepared to admit that you're wrong when you're wrong. But you also shouldn't be embarrassed about being right when you're right, when you're, when you're just assailed by mobs who just want to try and shout you down. And this often happens, well, sometimes happens to me. It's, you can get up a Twitter mob quite easily. It doesn't involve many ele electrons. And then all kinds of people are shouting the same thing at you. But it doesn't make any difference if their arguments are bad. There could be 10 million of them. It wouldn't alter, it wouldn't alter my position or bother me particularly. You've been quite prepared to engage with people, and certainly not just public figures on Twitter. And I wonder whether you have, in any of those exchanges, found halfway through or at a certain point that you are actually wrong and that someone has said something persuasive. And the reason I ask that is because you say that one should be prepared to do that, but also that I've had an experience of you that you are someone who argues in a way that seems so self-assured and so self-certain. Look, I, well, I do that because I've, I've made a careful pr preparation before arguing to know that what I'm saying is, is reinforced by reason and fact. It's one of the reasons I write books, so that I know the subjects about which I'm talking. I mean, nobody ever reads them, uh, so they don't know. But if they did, they'd find out that the things that I say are not just said off the top of my head for, for effect, but they're the, they're the results of considerable thought and research and actual knowledge. So I have reason to be confident. If I make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes, I make mistakes, I try to apologise for them quickly. Is it possible that you've mellowed? I don't know what the word means. I mean, I could, be mellow at, I could be mellow at the start of a conversation and I could get up and walk out of it at the end, as I recently established. Is that a good thing, to walk out of the conversation? I was on that occasion, yes. My only regret is that I didn't just walk out. It's that I came back and said, and, 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 and another thing. Uh, if I just walked out, it would have been fine. But I, my, my mistake was to keep on going on. But no, walking out is good sometimes. You don't have to take anything anybody throws at you. And, and, and you're not. I don't get paid for doing these things. I do them because people ask me, and it seems reasonable to do them in return. I'm under no obligation to anybody who I think is treating me with, with bad manners or, or, or is wasting my time. But there's a lot of talk, isn't there, at the moment about free speech and the boundaries of free speech. And I wonder whether your attitude in general is to debate with anyone. Or are there groups, let's say the far right or religious extremists, that you will not debate with. Do you think, broadly speaking, it is better to try to argue someone to reason, or do you have boundaries on that? Well, there are two different questions. Their freedom to speak is question one, and generally I defend people's freedom to speak, however disgusting the things are that they say, uh, but th that doesn't oblige me to, to argue with them, uh, especially if by doing so I might, I might expand their platform. So there are quite a lot of people who I wouldn't bother to argue with because they I would think of their opinions as contemptible. Uh, anybody who was a racial bigot, for instance, uh, anybody who, who was a, a, a neo-Nazi, people of that kind, I just wouldn't bother to talk to them. So, but that's, that's nothing to do with free speech. I, the fact that I won't talk to them doesn't mean they can't speak. It just means they can't speak to me. Do you have, although there are wider implications, aren't there, if, if television channels or radio stations decide not to put a particular voice on, not to platform someone? Oh, that's their problem. I, I, I don't, for one reason or another, I don't control any television stations. I barely get on them. So I'm usually the one they don't want to have on. You have been on television, many television channels and radio stations over the I years. I have, but it's diminishing. 
because the the jolly old Overton window is is shifting, and opinions such as mine are no longer welcome. You say, you say opinions such as yours, and my next question was going to be: I think some people might find that you have surprising views that that are unpredictable views. Do, do you have at the moment in your life a guiding political ideology or philosophy that pretty much whatever crops up you can fit into? Or is your view of the world, your understanding of the world, the way you look at the world, much looser than that? Well, the fundamental way in which I look at the world is, is from a, a, a Christian position, in, in my particular case, from a broad church Anglican Christian position and a very religiously inclusive one. And from that, you can derive some fundamental political principles about how people should be treated. Uh, but beyond that, you're left to your own devices, really. Uh, one of the things which greatly influences the way I think is my training as a Marxist-Leninist, which gives you an unrivaled understanding of how politics actually works and what the consequences of actions are. I'd recommend it to anybody. Uh, but it, I, I don't have some kind of pinball machine into which uh, I can feed uh, a controversy and, and, and push a button and wait for an answer to come out again at the other end. Can I get a sense of where you think the Conservative Party is at the moment? Because I said earlier, I didn't know whether you are a Tory now or identify with, identify with the Conservative Party. Well, you ought to know, because I've said it often enough, I, mean, I, I loathe the Conservative Party with a passion. I, one, one of my mistakes was certainly at an early, an early stage in my career as a columnist was to continue to treat the Conservative Party as a serious uh, political formation which had anything to do with Conservative thought and action, which it doesn't. And now I've conquered that folly, uh, I'm liberated from it. But no, I loathe the Conservative Party and I'm not a Tory. I, I'm asked, glad we've got that, got that clear at an early stage. Well, I, I, we're actually at quite an advanced stage in the interview now because you're... Well, I don't know how long this is going on. It feels quite early to me. <laughs> I, 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 I can be here all night if, if you're going to ask questions like that. We've obviously got a lot to clear up. We're on question about 19 already. I might have to ask some bonus questions. No, the reason I asked that is because we were on television together the other day. We were, as it were, notionally against each other. I think we probably agreed on some things. But you seem to me to think that it would be better to, for the British electorate to stick with this incarnation of the Conservative Party than to go and twist with Labour. No, it's having it backwards. What I think is that people should do almost anything they can to avoid having another Blairite government under Sir Keir Starmer, because the the Conservative Party is a is a is a shriveled bladder of the party. It has almost no passions or parts. It has no desire to do anything really. It's it's lost all sense of direction. If it remained in government, it wouldn't do much harm. Whereas a newly elected Starmer government would, as the Blair government did after 1997, an immense amount of harm. That's all. It's just a calculation. Uh, after yesterday, I have to say it's pretty futile holding this position because uh, that the the events of yesterday were, were the shortest suicide note in history. So nothing that I could do or say would would save it from the fate which now faces it, it seems to me. David Cameron, for goodness sake. I'm not going to challenge you on this because this isn't a podcast about me. It's a, a podcast about you. But I, there are certain things that, that, that I, I might pick you up on. The idea that the Conservative Party cannot do much harm it seems to me a bewildering run. Much harm? It's, it, I didn't say it couldn't do any, 
but it can't because it's so it, it's so clapped out and, and and finished and weary and purposeless and and, and ill led. It can't it can't do much. The, the thing about an, an incoming new Labour government with a thumping majority is that it, people don't understand what new Labour is. It's it's a very strongly ideological project to change the country irrevocably in directions which uh, which would alter all our lives. And it, if it comes to power on the back of election victory, it will do those things, constitutional things, economic things, political things, educational things, which will shock people, the people, the kind of people who believe uh, the trivia which people put in manifestos these days, just as the actions of the Blair government shocked people. They weren't expecting a great constitutional revolution. They weren't expecting the independence of the Bank of England. Nobody told them they weren't, they weren't expecting Alistair Campbell to be put in charge of the government. None of these things were said, uh, nor were they expecting a, a war in Iraq, but they got them. And if they elect a Starmer government, they'll get things very similar to that and in pretty short order. Whereas if you if, if the Tories survived, you wouldn't get them because they haven't got the energy or the strength to do anything of that kind. That's that's all. It's just it's the old King Log versus King Stork argument from Aesop's Fables. You're better off having a, a worn out, inactive government than a busy, active one. But Peter, if we leave my politics, my personal politics out of it, it does beg the question, how long would you be prepared to have a worn out government? The Tories have been have been governing in one form or another for 13 years. And if you follow the logic of what you're saying to a conclusion, we'd end up being a one party state. Well, no, you wouldn't. I, 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 I long, not necessarily, I, I, you probably the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that existing parties will dissolve. But it's futile discussing this. As I say, after after the events of Monday, there is going to be a Labour government. Uh, so it really is complete, even more irrelevant than it usually is. What I say about politics, and what I it's usually extremely irrelevant. Now I suppose it's about five thousand times as irrelevant. So why pursue it? It's as much interest as your opinions and mine on what Oliver Cromwell should do next. You're unhappy. You're unhappy about the events of yesterday, and by way of I'm happy about them. I just, I just think they, they, they let they were they clearly led. I found them quite funny, but they clearly left the Conservative Party as, as a finished body. I mean, you couldn't, you can't really, after everything that's happened in the past seven years, bring back David Cameron and think it's going to do you any good. So it's not that you're unhappy that Suella Braverman was sacked. I couldn't care less about Suella Braverman. I mean, I have no, no no affinity with or support for or liking for Suella Braverman. She's just another poseurs in in politics. Uh, I, I, I say I couldn't care less about that. It's just the it's just the the return of David Cameron after all the events which followed his his calling of that ridiculous referendum uh, and to save himself at the expense of the country. Uh, after all that, to bring him back as a, as a safe pair of hands, the man who did that. Uh, the man who launched a, a war in Libya, which created the gigantic migration crisis, which has destabilized the entire continent of Europe. Uh, a, a man unqualified, in my view, uh, for government at any level. Uh, and, and, and to bring him back as a safe pair of hands and as a reassurance shows that you don't have any idea what you're doing. So people will spot this. This is my 20th question, although I've asked you some as it were, addendum-type questions along the way. So we're almost, we're probably in cheating territory already, but how do you think your childhood shaped you? And, of course, you could spend days writing about that, maybe weeks, but just to give oh, us... Oh, immensely. I, I loved my childhood. It, it was, uh, I, I look back on it now as, a, as, a, as an extraordinarily blissful time, but also one in which I was brought up 
uh, for a world that no longer existed. My great advantage in the, in, the, in the trade of commentary is that most people now in journalism and politics are so badly educated that they make me look well-educated. And I, I, the, I, I had the advantages of a good education, but by and large, I didn't pay all that much attention to my teachers. So, but I can still appear well-educated. Uh, by comparison to people today, because because I went to those schools in that world which no longer exists and saw things which no one will ever see again and experience an England and a Britain uh, that no longer exists. So I know when I speak about the past what it was actually like, but I loved it. And of course, it has, everybody's childhood has an impact on them. We're now firmly in cheating territory, but did your father's job as a naval officer or the fact that your mother had been a Wren in the Navy in, in the Second World War. Did, did that influence you? It was wonderful. Yeah, I, to be associated with the Royal Navy, that, that most marvellous institution, uh, was great in itself. And the romance of it uh, was, was enormous. And to have both a mother and a father who'd, who'd served in this war, which we all regarded in a sort of scriptural way as the greatest event of our time and one in which the forces of good had triumphed. It was, it was a great thing to have. Is it true that you were unable to join the Navy yourself because you had a, 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 a visual impediment? Yeah, I've got, I've got a lazy left eye, which at the, at the time when it was discovered uh, would would have ruled me out from, from most uh, important jobs in the Navy. I had this dream of being a destroyer captain, which always seemed to me to be the most romantic job you could possibly have. I, luckily, I was saved from that because almost all the destroyers have been scrapped now. Uh, but yeah, no, that's that that did happen. I remember, I actually do remember the morning uh, in in Chichester in West Sussex coming out of the optician with that piece of news and having to readjust my um, my thoughts about the future. As a result, I coped. Did that scar you? No, <laughs> I don't take I don't take life like that. It doesn't. It's it, it's a silly attitude to life. If things can't be done, they can't be done. How did your relationship with your brother? And perhaps your ongoing relationship with your your now late brother, of course, how did that or has that shaped you? Immensely educational. I mean, we, you know, we rolled around on the floor trying to gouge each other's eyes out. We argued. We differed. We um, I, I, he was he was two and a half crucial years ahead of me in the on the path of education and knowledge, and therefore I picked up much earlier than most children do from what he was talking about and what interested him, ideas and arguments that I otherwise wouldn't have done, and he he almost certainly opened my interest in the political sphere, which I might not otherwise have developed. So it's an incredible advantage to have a brother of that kind. What do you like when you're not debating and when you're, out, when you're outside the sort of public sphere, when you're not, when you're not on camera or on radio or doing podcasts? Well, I'm kind to animals. I'm deeply charming. I help old ladies cross the road. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm almost saintly. That's what I'm telling you anyway. I think the best people to ask are other people, not me. Uh, no one really knows what, what he or she is like. I do have the advantage of doing what I look like because the, one of the weird things about being on, on, on television and these podcasts is you see over and over again, what do you look like? Which the, no generation in the, in the history of the world has ever been so well informed about what they look like, and I am better informed than most. It's fascinating to see the, the effects of aging and overeating piling up. Why, why do you have a beard? Because I like having a beard. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't sort of think deeply, but I think this is my fourth beard. Sometimes I have one, sometimes I don't. You say you like it. What is it that you like about it? 
I think it suits my face, actually. I like the I like the the, the in 1066 and all that. There's a there's a, there's a segment called the Age of Beards, uh, referring I think to the Elizabethan age when so many of the great men of the era wore beards. I always think it's a, it's a good look. I don't know why more people don't do it. Why don't you have a decent you know, beard? No I was going to ask you whether you describe what I have as a beard or a stubble. Well, at the moment, I mean, on the, unless I've got very poor reception on this machine, I would say it was stubble. But you, know, you might call it a beard. These days, anything goes. But I try it. Try to get move more towards the Father Christmas um, and see how it goes. The no. last beard, I had, the last beard I had was was brown. This one is largely white, and it's got sort of Karl Marx streaks on it. I remember one of the beards I had. Mrs. Thatcher didn't like it very much. I was a political reporter. I used to travel around with her uh, in her aeroplane from time to time, and she would give it some pretty stern looks. She really, it's not a legend that she didn't like beards. I, I keep trying to say that you're a cyclist, but you are a cyclist, aren't you? I'm a what? A cyclist. Yes, yes, I am. I am. I'm a, I ride a bicycle. I don't really think of this as an ist, but yeah, I do. I ride. I ride a bicycle a lot. Good way of getting around, and I found um, very, very good for both the body and soul. I recommend it to anybody who can do it. What gives you joy, Peter? What gives me joy? Um, the usual things, I imagine. You were a foreign correspondent. You worked in interesting and sometimes dangerous places. Well, I never went anywhere dangerous on purpose. I, I, I'm very much not that sort of, of, of foreign correspondent. If if I think someone is dangerous, I will try very hard not to go. I, I bumbled by accident into some danger and, was, and got out of it again as quickly as I possibly could. But did being I stretch that? I don't. I, I absolutely don't seek. I know, I know there are some people who actually seek and and get some exhilaration out of being in dangerous places. I am emphatically not one of them. Did being a foreign correspondent, has that, has that helped you in your journalism? Has that helped you in trying to understand the world around us? Oh, enormously. If you're, if you're living in, in somebody else's country, you're compelled all the time, if you're remotely curious, and I am inquisitive and curious, you're compelled all the time to examine uh, people who've decided to run a country in a different way from the one that you're used to. And in finding out how this other place is run and how people live in it and how much, how much it differs from your own, you learn a huge amount about your own country, which you often don't realize until you return just how much you do learn. It's one of the difficulties. Again, like most people haven't been Marxist learners. Most people haven't been correspondents in, in Moscow. So they, don't, they just don't have my advantages. So I rush ahead of people in my judgments on politics and other things, uh, and, and too far ahead, people don't get it. And then five years later, everybody catches up. Uh, and and I, I said, well, I could have told you at the time, but the, the problem is these things are such advantages that they're almost disadvantages. They give you a clearness of vision which other people simply can't hope to have. I could have spent this interview asking for your views on specific issues, big and small, but I thought it was interesting to get a sense, for people to get a sense of, of you, as it were, the man behind the, the ideas and the articles and the debates. What would you say has defined you as a journalist? Is it curiosity? Is it an interest in human beings, interest in ideas? What's the sort of primary thing? I don't think it's for me to say. I think we are ultimately what... We, we, we can't judge ourselves. We can't decide what our own qualities are. It, it, it has to be other people who do that, and often at a distance. What's driven you? Well, it's, it's, when I first went into journalism, I did so with the intention of, of, of actually infiltrating the newspaper industry on behalf of the revolution. Uh, when I 
abandoned the revolution, I found that it was nonetheless still an extremely enjoyable and, uh, and diverting trade. And I devoted myself to the ambition of becoming the sort of person who wrote uh, columns in national newspapers. And I could see that that wasn't going to be awarded to anybody and that I was going to have to go through a lot to do it. And I, I've set myself out to do those things. And so I spent many, many years doing such things as re reporting education, labor and industry, politics, defense and diplomacy, then doing time abroad before I felt qualified. In fact, the interesting thing was that I, I didn't, the, the idea that I should write a column as such by me emerged while I was in Moscow because uh, Nick Lloyd, who was my editor at the time, had the brilliant idea for a foreign correspondent of a popular paper to not just to shovel the news, of which there was, of course, a great deal in the Soviet Union at the time, but to write about my experiences of living in Moscow and traveling in the Soviet Union. And that's where the column that I now write really originated and where I first developed a relationship with readers who would write to me about the things that I described. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much for answering my 20 plus questions. Well, lucky I didn't walk out, eh? <laughs>